Welcome to the Meet Your Maker podcast, where we're going cover to cover in order to discover the glory, grace, and gift of knowing Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, help us as we now seek to understand your word. May you bury it in our hearts, God, and bring forth fruit uh, that is glorifying to you. Help us to see what you're teaching us, God. Help us to understand you. Help us to know you. Help our hearts to trust you. Help us to love you more, Jesus, as we just sang about, as we contemplate all that you are for us and all that you've won for us. May our hearts swell with love for you and may our lives reflect that growing love and deepening of affections within us. God, only you can do such a thing. I pray for those here tonight, Father, that as we study the word that your Holy Spirit would give assurance to those who are struggling and need assurance that they are, in fact, children of God. But Lord, I also pray for those who may be sitting in the midst of this congregation tonight. Lord, who have never come to you in faith, who have never been adopted into the family of God, God, who have never been born again by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray you would do only as you can do. Draw them to yourself, Lord Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. And may your name be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. For it is in your name that we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. You've got it there in your scripture journal. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So I want to ask you a somewhat unusual question tonight in response to this text, do you want, desire to be a child of God? So let me be clear on what I'm not asking. I'm not asking you if you think that you are one, though there may be parts in our dialogue tonight that you feel that way and maybe even reflect on that. That's fine, but I want you to know I'm not specifically asking you if you think that you are a child of God. That would be a fair question and maybe even a good one to ask. And there's plenty of people out there all asking that same question, echoing it all the time. So I want to ask you something different that I think gets at the heart of what these two verses are trying to get us to say or to see. And it's just a very simple question about the desires of your heart. Do you want to be a child of God? Does that sound like a wonderful thing To you is that sweet sound, sweet music to the ears of your heart, that phrase, the child of God. Whether it is or not, I think that it should be. And I also think John, the author of this book that we're studying, feels the same way. If you remember how I told you a few few weeks ago in that very first sermon, and if you're a good note taker, you actually wrote these five things down in the front of your scripture journal, but I told you in that very first sermon that John is writing this book with a persuasive bent. 
He's not writing to just purely inform your intellect, though he does that at times. He's primarily trying to warm your heart towards Jesus. He's trying to warm your soul to have affections for Jesus, to love Jesus, to want Jesus. He's trying to persuade you of that. Listen to the purpose statement. John chapter 20, verse 31. We talked about it that first week. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, talking about the things that are in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John chapter 20 Verses 30 through 31. So because of that verse, I know that every word before that verse is intentionally hand-selected and purposefully placed by John to do what he's aiming to do to warm your heart and soul towards Jesus. So when I read, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God I don't just see a religious nicety there that sounds good from this side of the pulpit. I see a persuasive idea in that phrase, child of God, a persuasive idea that John is using to make an appeal to you. And I and anyone else who is privileged to read this great gospel book, to believe and keep on believing in Jesus. Bottom line. You're a naive student of the Bible if you think John isn't trying to pull your heart towards Jesus in these verses. He's saying very plainly that if you believe in Jesus, then Jesus gives you the right to become a child of God. That's intended to be very persuasive to you. And so the question I'm asking you tonight is right in line then with what I feel is John's purpose. Do you want to be a child of God. Is that an appealing, lovely, wonderful, beautiful thought and sweet music to the ears of your heart? Well, I assume that, uh, unfortunately, it is not for everyone in this room. Some of you are not children of God, and so it does not sound to be a very convincing argument to you for believing in Jesus. And so let me color in the lines for you just a bit and give you what I believe to be five persuasive privileges of being a child of God. That is, five benefits and blessings that are true for the person who is a child of God, but not true for the person who isn't a child of God. And for your sake, I'm not going to jump all over the Bible. Uh, I think and believe that I can make all five of these persuasive arguments from one singular place in that great 8th chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Here's the verses I primarily have in mind. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 18. And so let's read those together and then talk about them. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now listen to verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Aramaic for Abba, Father, right? So Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of That is to be revealed to us. Privilege number one. And this is on your notes. Intimate relationship with God. The first privilege of being a child of God is that you have an intimate relationship with God. A personal, affectionate relationship with God. And just think about this for a moment. Prior to believing in Jesus Christ... You are the enemy of God. You're not a child of God prior to believing in Jesus. To be absolutely clear, you have rebelled against God. You hate the things of God. And you hate God when you get to the bottom root of it all. And God's attitude towards you in that sphere is one of holy justice and fierce wrath, anger, and vehemence. You see, we we need to get things right in the church today because I think and I'm afraid that we're giving people the wrong idea that God's attitude towards them is one of kindness, love, and grace even if they're outside of Christ, and that's just not so. It's true if you have believed in Jesus, but it's not true of you if you have not believed in Jesus. For those sinners who are outside of Christ are the objects of God's anger. And God will punish them for all eternity in that awful place called hell. The Bible is so astoundingly clear about this. And that's not to scare you, but to make sure you understand truth. So what I'm trying to get you to see is that before becoming a child of God, your relationship with God is dangerously rocky. And that's a lot phrase to describe it. But in becoming a child of God, your attitude towards God and His attitude towards you are totally altered. It's completely changed. As a child of God, you have the supreme privilege. In this text we read from Romans 8, Paul talks about you have the supreme privilege to come to God in the same way that a child comes to their parent when they're in need. Coming to Him saying, Abba, a very affectionate turn, Abba, Father. The God who was once your enemy is now Father to you. And you come to Him looking for help. So that's one privilege. His attitude towards His children is that of deep love and affection. And His attitude towards those outside of Christ is of extreme anger. So there's a benefit to being a child of God, the first one. The second one, privilege number two, the indwelling Spirit of God. If you read all of Romans chapter 8, that's really the major theme in the entire chapter. That because of Christ, the Holy Spirit is now indwelling in you, living within those who have believed in Jesus. 
And when we look specifically to verses 12 through 16, the entire idea there is that through God's Holy Spirit living within his children, we are empowered by grace to put to death the deeds of the body, to kill sin, and to live your life for the glory of God. That's a privilege that's only enjoyed by the children of God. God's Holy Spirit does not indwell people who are not his children. The Spirit only leads the sons and daughters of God. Privilege number three, inheritance of glory. I always thought about this as I was writing this. I kind of like cringe when people act like there's no reward for following Jesus. Like, like it's really popular now, you know, in the church. Uh, I've listened to sermons before, and I know the bend, and I get the idea, but it's almost like they're trying to not persuade you to follow Jesus. And sometimes they're quite successful. Uh, trying to get you to not do this. It's as if following Jesus is nothing but just pain and, and suffering and just awfulness and they talk about all the just terrible things that come along with that it's just it's so unappealing and then they just want to close the service and say does anybody wish to come and follow jesus you know and and surprisingly no one (laughs) steps forward and i just want to stand up in, in those moments and say yes following jesus will be difficult there will be trials and there will be heartache And there will be sufferings along the way. But we have a glorious future to look forward to. Your suffering as a child of God is not in vain. There is good reasons, are good reasons, for following Jesus in this life. Regardless of whatever difficulty is in front of you. Paul says it this way, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. A glory that he goes on to describe more vividly in verse 23 and connects it explicitly with the idea of being resurrected from the dead at the end of human history. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. Listen to what he says. As we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Dear fellow Christian, there is coming a day where this body, whether below the ground or above it or in the deepest sea or buried in some desert far, far away, will be resurrected and transformed into the glorious image of the Son. And there will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will be no heartache. There will be no pain. There will be no more people dying from COVID. There will be no more tragedies in Afghanistan. There will be no tears at all within our face or in our hearts because he has wiped them away. But only an innumerable amount of years before us to rejoice, celebrate, and enjoy This glorious God who has saved us from our sins and brought us into his presence forevermore. We have a great future to look forward to. The present may be hard. Yes. I can assure you that it will be. But as a child of God, you have an inheritance of glory that is not even worth comparing with the sorrows and sufferings this present world. That's a privilege only for the children of God. People who are not children of God do not have an inheritance. Only the children of God. Privilege number four, indestructible purpose. 
I'm trying to use good alliteration here for your benefit. Indestructible purpose. And I think this one speaks more to the, to the idea of that hell on earth that we walked through that verse 18 was talking about. You know, like, listen, even the bad things in your life, brother and sister, if you're a child of God, then God is even using those struggles to shape you, even the pains and the trials to shape you into the image of Son, to work out His purpose in your life. It's great news when you read the Bible and we learn that the vilest evil can't stop the shaping hand of the sovereign Savior. The gates of hell itself cannot stop Jesus from shaping even the hard seasons of your life into good things. The devil himself can't stop Jesus from working out his purpose in your life. For his purpose, the purpose of God for the lives of his children is indestructible. Or as Paul says it, and you all know this verse. It's taken out of the context a lot, but it's a great verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And when he says all things, Paul's thinking about those sufferings he's talking about in verse 18. All things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 8, 28 through verse 20. Now, that's a precious reality that only the children of God can claim. Like, if you're not part of the redeemed children of God, I can't say that God's working out the purposes in your life for good. That's a privilege only for the children of God. An indestructible purpose. Privilege number five, infinite security. Let me just read what Paul says first. And then comment on this is verses 35 through 39. You, you probably know this well also. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Never say that the Bible doesn't acknowledge the hardships of life. It does. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh, to be called child of God. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. Doesn't that sound like such a wonderful thing to you? To enjoy these five privileges, and there's more. We just don't have hours to unpack all of them. What a wonderful thing to be called a child of God. But how does it happen? Or that's where John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 inform our minds. Thankfully, John tells us two things that must happen in these verses. One thing that must happen in order for you to become a child of God is that Jesus must give you the right to become a child of God. That's verse 12. Now, you may have always read that and thought that John is talking about being born again. 
But I actually think that John is talking about the doctrine of adoption. That is, that God actively makes you, or the person believing in Jesus, actively makes them part of God's family. And I think this is something totally distinct when we get down to the nuts and bolts of it, totally different from the doctrine of regeneration, which is commonly called being born again, the new birth. And so here's the point I want you to see. Adoption is the response of Jesus to our believing in his name. Adoption is the response of Jesus to our believing in his name. Now let me, let me show you why I think this from John chapter 1 verse 12. First, what else could this write? It also could be translated authority. Even some of the older translations use the word power. What could this writer authority or power be? Surely, it's not the right to birth yourself again, for that would not only contradict the plain teaching of Scripture in places such as John chapter 3 or Ephesians 2 or Jeremiah chapter 32, but it would almost really just be a nonsensical thing to say. Who in here was able to produce their own first birth? Nobody. Now, you were present. But it was really by involuntary choice. <laughs> if you couldn't produce the lesser, why would you ever think you can produce the greater? So, I don't interpret verse 12 as talking about the new birth. Instead, and I think this is the most straightforward interpretation of verse 12. John is saying that in response to believing in the name of Jesus... Jesus then authorizes, that is, gives you the right to become a child of God. What does that mean to believe in His name? we still got to dig a little bit more here. But here's the thing. It, it, it's not just mental agreement, though I think that's part of it. You need to understand who Jesus is claiming to be before you can believe in His name, or otherwise, what would you believe in? You wouldn't even know. Uh, so you got to understand what's going on there, but, but it's more than just mental comprehension and acceptance. Believing by the biblical standard is always primarily a matter of the heart over the head. You see, the idea of believing in the sense in which John is using it is to receive Jesus for who he says, which is what he means by that prepositional phrase, in his name. To hear his claim to be the true light revealing the fullness of God to humanity, the Son of God sent into the world to save it, the Christ who is God's chosen one, anointed one, to believe in his name is to understand that Jesus claims to be the eternal Son of God who is sovereign over all things and to embrace this truth and the implications that the truth bears on your life. That's believing on the name of Jesus. So don't take that shallow road and say, oh, I just believe some historical things about Jesus. Biblical belief is always something much more than just involving the mind. It involves the heart. It's, I understand what Jesus is claiming and I embrace this into my life. And I'm going to pattern my life according to the truth of who Jesus is and how he calls me to live my life. And John says when that happens, Jesus responds by giving you the right to be adopted into the family of God, giving you the privilege to become a child of God. 
But let me just throw in this one observation before leaving this point behind us. Did you notice who holds the authority here? Because I think we get that wrong a lot. Certainly isn't me, nor you, or anyone else in this room. And I know that totally kicks against the version of becoming a Christian that some of us may hold or maybe was taught. But I just need to make this very clear to you. You do not enter the family of God on your own terms. (laughs) You do not pick a version of Jesus that you like or a version of Him that makes less demands on your life. Or a version of Him that allows you to live however you want by hanging on to some real estate in heaven. You don't get to do that. That's called idolatry because you're making an image of the Son of God in your mind that is totally contrary to how He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. So hear the good news. If you come to Jesus believing and trusting in His name as He reveals Himself in mind and heart, embracing that truth, then Jesus will authorize you to become a child of God and to be adopted into the family of God, enjoying all those glorious privileges that we talked about from Romans chapter 8. But Jesus doesn't let fakers into the family. You must come to him on his terms, believing in who he reveals himself to be, not the Americanized, easy-believism idol that you've constructed in your mind. That's the first thing that must happen. Adoption. And adoption is the result of believing in the name of Jesus. But how, how do I believe? Getting into the nuts and bolts of this. More specifically, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, how do I not follow in the footsteps of people talked about in verses 10 and 11? Let me recap that for you. Verse 10 and 11 of John 1. He, talking about Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. How do I not be like those people who stare at the Himalayas? in wonder, and yet refuse to worship the God who made them? How do I not have that spiritual blindness that is so evident in the people described in verses 10 and 11? They're looking into the eyes of the God who made them while they crucify Him to a cross. What's the difference between them and the people of verse 12 who were adopted into the family of Jesus? What's the difference here between these two people? The most straightforward answer from verse 13 is that the difference was that those who believed were children who had been born of God. Had nothing to do with their parents. That may be good news for you in here. I don't know. Had nothing to do with their parents. Had nothing to do with their level of education. Had nothing to do with their intellect. Had nothing to do with themselves whatsoever. John gives us one definitive reason at the very last part of that. But of God. Now I know you may be struggling Because it's tough here, right, to see the difference between verse 12 and verse 13. And again, I want to point out to you that I interpret these verses as to be talking about two different acts of God, adoption and regeneration. 
being adopted into the family of God, and being born by the power of God. Verse 12 is talking about adoption, becoming a child of God by putting your faith in Jesus. But verse 13 is talking about birth, not adoption. It's talking about being made alive spiritually. And here's where I think probably the confusion comes in. We're so hardwired culturally to think that born again is... That's like the only phrase to use for regeneration. And and that's just not so. It's a common term that we all know. We hear it all the time. But as you survey the Bible, what you'll discover is that God uses multiple images to get this idea of regeneration across. Paul says this in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, using the term of washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6, Paul likens this idea or image more to the idea or image of resurrection. And here in this text, John seems to be drawing on the imagery of birth. There's a passage, Ezekiel 36, talks about the valley of dry bones. There's a lot of images that the Bible uses to try to get you to understand or to see or envision this idea of God making Spiritually dead people alive spiritually. He doesn't just use the term born again to describe this new creating power that God does in the hearts of dead sinners. The point is that you understand that when John says born of God, he's pointing to that divine act of God where he makes dead sinners alive spiritually so they will respond in faith to Jesus and be adopted into the family of God. And I know that idea makes us uncomfortable, but I decided long ago that I'm just not interested in you being comfortable. I don't know if you pick up on that with me. I just have decided that a long time ago that I just really don't care about your comfort. I'm just not in for that. I I didn't get into ministry to make a bunch of theological sissies. It's just not what I'm here for. I want you to see truth. And I want you to pattern your life according to truth. And to live in response to truth. I'm done with this wishy-washy Christianity that we see everywhere. I'm going to get on a tyrant. I need to get back to my notes here. I want you to see truth and be shaped by it. So the other thing that must happen for you to become a child of God is that you must be born of God by the, whole, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you'll be just like those people in verses 10 and 11 that we read about. Who are so blinded by sin, so deadened by depravity, that they look into the eyes of God and reject Him. Well, they didn't know it was God, Zach. Because they're dead in sin! <laughs> It doesn't change who Jesus is just because they didn't recognize him. Well, he was in you. He's still the Son of God. He formed the universe, spoken into existence. Yeah, they didn't see him because they're blind and they're deaf and they're, they're dumb and stupid and they're dead. That's why. And unless you're going to be like those people, God has to do something, intervene into the life of your heart and make you alive. So that you will not miss Jesus like they did. But that you will see Him for who He is and embrace Him, love Him, celebrate Him, attach yourself 
to Him, lean on Him, rest in Him, trust in Him for all things and in all ways. The point is this, believing is the result of the new birth. So here's, here's the conclusion. How do you apply that? Like, bad preaching just throws a bunch of stuff out there. And I'm guilty of this sometimes. Throws a bunch of stuff out there and just leaves. You know, like, deal with it. You need to apply this. How can you apply this truth to your life? I think the answer is way, way more simple than we often make it. If you want to be a child of God, then simply ask the Lord Jesus to make you one. He is faithful. He is merciful. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He will walk alongside of you through the trials of life. When hardships come, He will hold your heart in His hand. He's not rude, abrasive, nor bitter, but loving, compassionate, caring. And the great gospel promise here is that if you embrace Jesus for whom He reveals Himself to be, and you attach your life to Him, He is faithful to make you a child of God. I don't care what you've done in the past. I don't care how awful you think you are or how good you think you may have been. Jesus will make you a child of God. When you believe in His name. You say, what about the new birth part? You have nothing to do with that. Trust in God. He is merciful. You are at the mercy of God. And that's a great place to be. Let me pray for us before we close.